John's Christmas story is a bit non-traditional. In John's version, there are no shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. You find no reference to a star or a stable, an overpopulated inn or a little town called Bethlehem. There's not one reference to Mary or Joseph or King Herod or the wise men from the east who come bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There are not very many of the familiar characteristics and characters of the nativity story in John's gospel. And yet I want to submit to you this morning that what John gives us in the opening lines of his sacred text is fundamentally foundational to our understanding, not just of Christmas, but of Christ. There may not be a more densely packed, theologically rich passage of Scripture than the prologue of John's Gospel. And so this morning, I want us to do our best to try to unpack some of that paragraph. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Once you've found your place in sacred Scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. John chapter 1, allow me to get, begin at verse 1 and conclude at verse 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. Now he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of the human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who's at the Father's side, has made him known. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Over the last several weeks, we have been examining the beginnings of the four gospels. We have taken note that it was Mark who begins his gospel with the baptism of Jesus, marking the public ministry of our Lord. Luke 
launches his gospel some 30 years earlier by weaving together the birth narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus. Last week, we discovered Matthew, who went back 2,000 years before the coming of Christ and linked the line and lineage of Jesus to Father Abraham. But John, he surpasses them all. He begins in the beginning. This is John. John is the son of Zebedee. He is more commonly referred to as the beloved disciple. It is this particular John who authored about five books in the New Testament. The gospel that bears his name, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. This particular gospel is the last of the four gospels written in the sacred text. It was probably penned somewhere between 80 and 85 A.D. The reason John writes his gospel is purely evangelistic. His mission statement, purpose statement, is given at the very end of the gospel, chapter 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. John wants to make it abundantly clear that the only way for any of us to have eternal life is by belief in the accomplished work of the one and only Jesus the Christ. So he launches his gospel in the beginning. He wants us to know as the reader that this gospel that he is about to proclaim is really nothing new. For it finds its origin and it is rooted in the beginning. When you and I hear that phrase, our minds race back to the first line that was written in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John wants us to know that this gospel, which communicates our salvation, finds its origin before creation ever was founded and established. That this gospel, that the way that you and I are saved, is through the life and work of Jesus the Christ. And this, according to John, is God's plan A of salvation and God's God doesn't have a plan B. This is the only way that anyone has ever found faith. This is the only way that anybody has ever been saved by believing upon this gospel. And this gospel was not a creation of John. This gospel was not something that was conjured up in the first century. This gospel finds its origin in the very beginning. Before there was anything else, there was this gospel. And John wants us to know that the gospel that has now taken flesh has its roots in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. Now many of you may realize that that Greek word is logos. In the beginning was the logos. And throughout the ages, people have tried to define logos. The Stoics simply said, it is the rational principle by which everything else in existence arrives its meaning. Philo simply said that Lagos was the ideal man. In the Greek language, Lagos means word or expression. In the Hebrew mindset, the word of God was always tied and tethered to the creative power of God and his redemptive activity. 
So in a place like Psalms 33, it says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. In a place like Psalm 107, it says that by his word, they were healed. Every time in the Old Testament, when the word of God is communicated, it is always tied to God's creative power and or his redemptive activity. John tells us that in the beginning was the word. Now when you read that line, you automatically ask yourself a couple of questions. What is Logos? Or who is Logos? And so John gives us some some basic yet profound characteristics of Logos. He tells us that the Logos is co-eternal. That in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. That whatever this logos is, it is something that is co-eternal. It is eternal with God the Father. For as God existed, so did logos. There was never a time that logos did not exist. For logos has always existed in the same amount of of, of eternity past as God. It is co-eternal. It's also co-equal. For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That this Logos is is co-equal. It's it's not uh, somehow a second-rate citizen of heaven. This Logos, it it is God. It is God. So this is co-eternal, and it is co-equal with God. Now, I know I run the risk of being a spoiler, But you and I probably have a holy hunch that this Logos is Jesus. I mean, I realize that that I just gave you a Christmas gift, and before you could unpack the bow, I told you what was inside. I mean, I'm kind of like that guy who tells you what you're going to get before you even have a chance to open it. But this Logos is Jesus, and Jesus is co-eternal and co-equal. He has existed with God from the very beginning, and he is God. Friend, don't ever make the mistake of the fourth century heretic, that theologian named Arius. Arius said of Jesus and Logos, there was a time when he did not exist. Oh, my friends, don't make that mistake. Don't make that mistake to somehow think that Jesus was created by God the Father. Do not make the mistake of thinking that Jesus just burst onto the scene some 2,000 years ago on a starry night in Bethlehem and was found there in the manger by a bunch of woolly shepherds. Do not make the mistake of thinking that somehow that Jesus at one time or another did not exist. Do not be like the 4th century heretic named Arius who said there was a time when he was not. Oh, my friend, John makes it abundantly clear. This Logos Jesus is co-eternal, co-equal with God. Don't make the mistake of the present-day heretics named Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christian. That is a heresy. Because in their version of John's gospel, it will simply read, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. 
in their version of John's gospel, they insert that one word, that one lettered word, A, that Jesus was a God, maybe one among many. No, my friend, do not make that same uh, heretical statement because we know that there is one God, the one God who exists in Trinitarian fashion of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This Jesus is co-eternal and co-equal with God. He is not a creation of God, a lesser God, another God, or merely like God. He is God in the flesh. This is Jesus. He is the Logos of God, and he has always existed, and he is equal with God in supremacy and in all fashion, because he is God. I like, I like what D.A. Carson writes in his commentary. When D.A. Carson says, we acknowledge that Logos is not the full trinity, but the deity that dwells within the Trinity fully rest in Jesus. I like that. Jesus is not the totality of the Trinitarian God, but we do know that all the full deity of the Trinity rest squarely and securely in Jesus the Christ. So friend, don't ever make the mistake of demoting Jesus, making less of him, I'll go so far as to say, I don't think we can make too much of Jesus. I mean, I, I don't think we can lift him too high. I don't think we can think about him too much. I don't think we can serve him too much. I don't think we can worship him too much. I don't think we can pray to him too much. I don't think we can share him too much. I don't think we can consider him too much. I don't think we'll ever run the risk of making too much of Jesus. But in our culture, in our day, we do have a tendency of making less of Jesus. Oh, friend, don't ever be a fourth century heretic like Arius. Don't ever be like a present day heretic, Jehovah's Witnesses. Don't ever be like a heretic who simply makes less of Jesus. Because according to Paul, he is given the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you see that verse personified, you realize that, that, that everybody, everybody will acknowledge that Jesus is Christ. Paul is not a universalist. He is not saying that all dogs go to heaven. He is not saying that all people are going to heaven. But what he is saying is that everybody at one point or another will understand and know that Jesus is Christ. Either we know it now by confession or we'll know it on that great day by compulsion. And if we wait till that great day and only know it under compulsion, by then it's too late. Today, while there's still an opportunity, confess Jesus is Lord. Acknowledge this logos is co-eternal and co-equal with God. But John continues, he gives us a few more glorious characteristics of this Logos. He says that Logos is creator, for by him all things were made. Without him there's not anything made that has been made. This seems to echo what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, that he being Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. By him, all things were made, and through him, all things hold together. Once again, this is reminiscent of what the 
author to the Hebrew letter says when he begins that great epistle by simply saying, in these latter days, God has spoken to us through his son, through whom he made the universe. It seems that everywhere else in the New Testament that it affirms that this Jesus is the creative agent of all creation. And here John says that everything that's been made has been made through him. That without him, nothing can be made. He has made everything visible and invisible. He has made everything big and small. He has made everything that is perceptible and that is imperceptible. He has made all things he is creator of everything. Not only is he co-eternal and co-equal and creator, he's life giver. In him was life. The life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness cannot understand it. It is Jesus who will say of himself in this very gospel, in this fourth gospel, that's entitled John. It is Jesus who will say in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He will say to a grieving sister named Martha in John chapter 11, I am resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Do you believe this? Jesus will affirm what John speaks in his prologue that this logos, he is light, he is life. This Logos, we are told, is co-eternal and co-equal. He is creator. He is life giver. You get to verse 6 of John chapter 1, and for the first time, John gives us a name. It's a man named John. And you automatically, as the first reader, you think to yourself, this must be Logos. This must be who is described in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And so he introduces us to this man named John. We know him as John the Baptist. And quickly, John, the beloved disciple, dismisses the notion that John the Baptist is Logos. No, he is not the light. He only came to give testimony and witness to the light. You get to verse 9. Verse 9 is John's Christmas story in one sentence. The true light that gives light to every man has come into the world. Friend, that's Christmas. I mean, we, we can talk about the shepherds and the stars and Bethlehem and the wise men. We can talk about all those other things and all those other things are great in the nativity narrative. But fundamentally, the meaning of the message of Christmas is found in John chapter 1 verse 9. The true light that gives light to every man, woman, boy, and girl has now come into the world. This seems to echo what the prophet Isaiah wrote in chapter 9, verse 2, that those groping in darkness have seen a great light. The dawn has finally come. That, that those that are groping in, in dark, sinful humanity, now the light of life has now been illuminated. So that those who were in darkness can now run in the marvelous light. Those who had no faith can now have faith in Jesus Christ. Those who were dead in their sin can now be made alive in Christ Jesus. The true light that gives life to every man had come into the world. Now what makes that so odd is that the world, which was made by this Logos, did not recognize him. That those who needed salvation, 
were peering at the Savior, and they didn't even know it. That the, the one who is co-eternal and co-equal, the creator of all things seen and unseen, the one who is the life giver, this light of the world has now come. He came through the birth canal of a virgin girl. He lived here on this earth for 33 some years and here he is and the world did not receive him. Why? Because they did not recognize him. I think this is a slap in the face, don't you? It goes beyond being a slap in the face. It is the height of stupidity for creation to not be able to recognize its creator, for creator to come to creation, and for creation to not acknowledge, that's my creator. I mean, that is the height of stupidity. The world did not recognize him. So there were many in the world that did not receive him. You know, what's true 2,000 years ago is still true today. The light has come into the world, but men and women with dark eyes, tainted by sin, they do not recognize that their creator has come. They do not recognize, they do not receive this life-giving logos that the Father has given to humanity. But before you get too down and depressed, not everybody rejected him. John says there were some who received him. And they received him. And how did they receive him according to verse 12? By believing upon his name. And by believing upon his name, they became sons and daughters of God. Sons and daughters, not, not born in human ways, not of a decision of the will of a father or a mother, but born of God. Something that is completely supernatural. There were some who have received him. There were some who look upon Jesus as the sole savior of the universe. There are some who look upon him and they know, here is my creator, here is my redeemer. And how does a person go from no faith to faith? How does a person receive this salvation? John says, by believing upon his name. That dovetails beautifully with his purpose statement, doesn't it? John chapter 20, verse 31, once again, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the only equation for salvation that's ever been given from eternity past to eternity future. This is plan A. There is no plan B. There, there's no other alternative route. This is the only way that sinful dead people can be made alive and united with God. It is by believing upon his name. Now all throughout the Bible, a, a name signified essence and character. For John to say you believe upon his name, you believe upon his accomplished work. You believe upon his activity. You believe upon his character. You believe upon the reality that Jesus is who he said he is. Now what is John going to do? John is going to lay out a clear case that Jesus is Christ. In fact, he's going to use seven I am statements to describe uh, Jesus. And these will be words on the lips of Jesus. Jesus will use these messianic metaphors to describe himself. Now, Jesus is either Lord or a lunatic, right? Because in John's gospel, Jesus makes no bones about it. He says, I am God. Now, you either take him at, at face value, you either take him at his word, and he's Lord, 
or he has the biggest God complex of anybody who's walked the sod. Right? I mean, Jesus is either Lord or a lunatic because in John's gospel, it becomes abundantly clear that Jesus believes himself to be God. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am resurrection and life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. On seven occasions, he will speak these I am statements and he will communicate who he knows himself to be. And the way you go from no faith to faith, the way you're saved is by believing upon that name, believing in that person, believing in the work of Jesus who carried your sins to Calvary's hill. And there he died for your condemnation. He was placed into a borrowed grave and on the third day he was raised from the dead. Now John in verse 14 says the way this believing upon his name is sealed, the way this transaction takes place is that that word logos became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled with us. Literally, it means he pitched his tent. He set up shop. He came, not making a cameo appearance. He came, not here today and gone tomorrow, but he came. And he, he walked our dirt. And, and he breathed our air. He came and lived among us. He took upon himself all of our frailties and all of our sicknesses and, and all of our sadness and all of our disease and all of our imperfections. He wrapped himself even in our flesh and nailed it to the cross. He took upon himself our sin and he bore the punishment for it. Jesus came for the purpose of salvation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Many of you remember my good friend, our good friend, Reginald Calvert, who I believe stood in this very spot and talked about that Logos, that Jesus. And he said of Jesus that that was one cross-eyed baby. Because when Jesus came, he had the cross on his mind. He had his sights set on Calvary's hill. From the moment Jesus came into the world, he knew that he came to seek and to save you, lost humanity. A friend last night made the reference uh, that Jesus is simply God in our bod. And that's, that's kind of true. I mean, he sank himself down into our flesh. He wrapped himself into our frailty. Why? So that we might be saved. I've told you before that my favorite Christmas card I've ever received it was given to me years ago by my sister. My sister Alicia sent us this Christmas card, and on the front of it, it, it simply said that if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a Savior. Not just a Savior, not just any Savior, but the only Savior for all humanity. Jesus is the only way that anybody can go to God. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. By believing upon his name. This equation works. It worked for a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus under the cover of night and said, How can I be saved? 
It worked for a woman who was a Samaritan individual at a well who had a roadside conversation with Jesus. It works for anybody living in any age. It, it works for anybody seated here at First Baptist Church Pelham. It even worked on a scrawny, knobby kneed nearly seven-year-old boy at Logan Station Road in Shelbyville, Kentucky. I remember the day. It was April the 15th, 1981. And Jesus invaded my life. I was only six, almost seven. I didn't know a whole lot, but I knew that I was a sinner. Oh, I didn't always do what mom and dad told me to do. I didn't always treat my older sister the way she ought to be treated. I had some understanding of sin. And I knew that sin was punishable. And I also heard that good story that Jesus had come to take the whipping for me. That if I just simply believed upon him, believed in the good gospel story of what he did at Calvary's Hill for me, that he would take all the punishment that I deserved and that I would be with God forever. I had no idea what forever meant. I remember asking my mom, how long will I be in heaven? And she told me, you'll be there forever. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know I've heard that, but what about when I really die? Because I couldn't, I couldn't bear the concept of forever. I mean, that's a long time, right? And yet, in the best way possible and the only way that I knew how, on that night of April the 15th, 1981, I just kneeled beside my bed and asked Jesus to save me because I believed on his name. And he did. And I'm standing here this morning to tell you that the one who saved me so many years ago, oh, he's still saving me. And this one who is still saving me, oh, he'll one day ultimately save me by taking me out of this world and taking me home. But I tell you what, that is one decision I've made in my life that I have never regretted. The equation for me is the same as Nicodemus. It's the same as the Samaritan woman at the well. It's the same for anybody that we must simply believe upon his name, his character, his essence, his activity, what he did to accomplish our salvation. It's not until you get to verse 17 that the name is given. It's Jesus the Christ. The word was etched in stone by Moses. The word was etched in flesh by Jesus Christ. And John says of this Jesus, he is the one and only. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only has seen God. Remember what Jesus will say later in John's gospel? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I and the Father are one. John tells us that because of Jesus, we have one blessing after another. Anybody can give testimony to that? One blessing after another. The, the actual phrase is grace upon grace. I like that. That God's grace is like the waves of the ocean. It just never stops. Just one grace upon another grace, upon another grace, upon another wave of grace. 
Oh, this is what caused John Newton, that transformed slave trader, to say of God's grace, it is amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It is amazing. Amazing grace, his grace that waves over us time and time again. But in the fourth verse of that powerful song, John Newton simply wrote, The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Can you say this morning, his word my hope secures. I think that John Newton may have been thinking about the prologue of John's gospel when it's here that John the beloved disciple gives us the identity of the Logos as Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the word made flesh and that word my hope secures. My hope is secure not in this world not in the things of this world my hope is secure in the word, Jesus the Christ. This morning, can you sing the same song? This morning, can you say the same thing? Can you declare that your hope is completely satisfied in the word made flesh? Listen, friend, if you can't, today can be the day of your salvation. It's a free gift that God gives to you. I do need to tell you up front, it demands everything that you have. It's a free gift. God gives it to you freely. But, but don't just take this nonchalantly. No, it's a gift that will demand everything in your life. But it's worth it. So I wonder, do you need to receive this word? Uh, maybe this morning you need to come uh, and take one of the hand of the pastors and say, I, I need this Jesus. I need this life-giving, co-eternal, co-existent Christ in my life. If that's you, you come. Maybe you're here today and your hope is secure in the word. But you got a spouse that's not very secure. You got a child, you got a grandchild in the far country, not very secure in the word. Maybe you just want to come and pray for them. Maybe you need to come and uh, just join this faith family and say, I want together to make much of Jesus. Whatever it is that the word of God is calling you to do, be obedient right now, today. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. We pray uh, that you will honor and glorify yourself as we make much of you today. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen.